Let the stormy clouds chase everyone from the place. Come on with the rain, I've a smile on my face. I walk down the lane with a happy refrain, just singing, singing in the rain. Dancing in the rain. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Raptin Podcast, episode six. I'm excited to be back with Kyle. How are you doing, Kyle? I am deeply depressed. And Ken, how are you? I feel okay, but sometimes my arms bend back. You should go see a chiropractor about that. Jeff, we're happy to have Jeff Fallis back with us. He was camping in Ghostwood National Forest and was lost for a while, but he has now returned to the podcast. Welcome back, Jeff. Uh, I'm very happy to be back. Thanks. Would you see anything interesting in the woods? I, I had a vision of sort of a, a white palatial structure um, and had a sense of overwhelming peace and harmony. Besides that, not much. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, let's jump into episode six. I, I think it was uh, a different episode in a way like the last episode as we're kind of feeling our feet from reeling in the first four hours of the show. We had maybe a little bit less plot advancement, but some really intense and powerful scenes that we're going to talk about later. Uh, before we get into the details, do any of you guys have any big picture observations? I'll say that I appreciated the episode formally. I thought it was stitched together nicely. It was probably the best constructed episode since episode three to me, but I am still in this place where I think we all are, uh, where I'm waiting on something to dispel all of the darkness. And so I find myself like Kyle, deeply depressed by the whole experience. I was excited by the two kind of moments of revelation, uh, which we found out, I think most likely uh, what uh, the log lady had told Hawk was missing uh, and in which one of the great mysteries of Twin Peaks who, what exactly Diane was, we had a, a, a grand, a great reveal. And I was excited about that. And we had one of the great Albert moments of all time. Right. We start this episode, but we're back with uh, Coop at the statue. He's still kind of not non-responsive to the police officer who tells him to stop loitering. Jeff, he was doing something with his, his left sleeve that was kind of weird. He was kind of pulling his hand into the sleeve. Did you have any theories about what he's doing there? The only thing I could think of was, I don't know, I had some vague memory of being a kid and like making a gun, you know, kind of like pulling like my sleeve down and like doing that and having some sort of like, a, that's the only thing I could think that he was trying to do uh, because that's what the statue was doing. But it's probably not that good of a theory. Which arm is Philip Gerard missing? It's the left. That's right. So maybe there's a parallel there. He's, his arm is starting to let him down, so he needs to saw it off. Well, and that's also the arm where, where you had the numbness. Uh, Dougie was wearing the owl ring on that arm, and, and that was the one that was going numb when we first met him. That's right. There you go. That and makes so, sense to me. So uh, Coop gets a ride home to Lancelot Court. It seems like Janie E. is like well accustomed to uh, Coop showing up at her door uh, uh, accompanied by a, a cop or a limousine driver and kind of ushers him into the room, into the house. He's very interested in the badge that the police officer has. 
uh, both in the previous scene and this scene, he tries to touch it. Uh, clearly, he's, you know, starting to reconnect with some aspect of his past. And, uh, you know, we have this sort of domestic scene at the table with Janie E uh, fixing sandwiches and saying that she's going to finally take him to a doctor, which, you know, really sounds like a good idea, maybe. And then she sends Coop up the stairs to say goodnight to Sonny Jim. And I think, Ken, you had a, a particular insight about kind of what's going on in the show at this point. Well, first of all, I'm exhausted by Dougie, by uh, Kooplicate, by this whole thing. I think my notes say I shall never be free of this plot. It's it's completely exhausting, and I understand that Lynch doesn't care and that we're going to get just exactly as much of it as he wants us to get and like it, but I just want to voice my overall exhaustion with, with the whole thing. But yeah, the whole sequence in the house and all of this stuff just reminds me of this famously awful bit in Marvel's Secret Wars 2 crossover. I think it's the second one, Secret Wars 2, where the Beyonder who put together the Tournament of Champions from Secret Wars 1 has come to Earth and taken human form. And because of particular era, Michael Jackson was very popular at the time. His human form involves a jerry curl and like a silver suit. And it's utterly ridiculous. And he doesn't understand being human or how human physiology works. And there is, I shit you not, a very famous sequence of panels in which the Beyonder is at Spider-Man's apartment and he is very confused about this fullness in his stomach and Spider-Man has to teach him how to poop. That is actually a thing that happens in a Marvel comic from approximately 30 years ago. And every time I see uh, Dougie and Janie E now, I think she's going to have to teach him how to defecate at some point. This is where we are. This is the this is the beyond Spider-Man teaching the Beyonder to poop of Twin Peaks. This is where we've ended up in 2017. The experience is consummated. Yeah, that's right. At the end of the series of panels, uh, the Beyonder emerges from the bathroom in Peter Parker's house, and he says, the experience is consummated. Uh, I shall go to Reed Richards, as though no nobody needs to hear about his success pooping more than the leader of the Fantastic Four. So, and, uh, and the it's- odds, odds on those being the final words in episode 18, the experience is consummated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, six to one at worst. <laughs> right. So, uh, Doug Coopy goes up the Cooper goes up the stairs and has some chips. He he tries to share them with Sonny Jim, but Sonny Jim notes that he has brushed his teeth. And uh, there's definitely a strong cowboy Indian motif going on in Sonny Jim's room, from his wallpaper to his lamp uh, to other aspects about his room. And his lamp is connected to a clapper which is just hella fun for uh, Coop and Sonny Jim to play with. In the meantime, downstairs, uh, Coop is in trouble because Janie E uh, has now opened the plain manila envelope that the police officer helpfully identified at at the door when he dropped off Coop. Inside is a picture of uh, Dougie, actual Dougie, it looks like, not Coop Dougie, uh, with Jade. And Jade smile or Coop smiles after he's summoned downstairs by a, a very angry Janie E and says Jane gave two rides, which, you know, <laughs> not what Janie E wanted to hear. And then they get a phone call, uh, presumably from the people to whom Dougie apparently owed money. Janie E immediately starts negotiating and making logical arguments as to why a threat of violence to break someone's legs is not going to encourage payment. Uh, probably not a line of argument that people who make such threats frequently receive right um we know that that he owes fifty thousand dollars or more uh and then janie decides that she's going to 
handle this herself, which is a good idea because clearly Coop is not capable of doing that. And they're going to meet up at Guinevere and Merlin at noon 30 tomorrow, and she's going to have a red purse. And Ken, you have some more insights uh, into this particular part of the episode, so I'm going to let you run with it. Well, I did precisely the same amount of research as I did about the Red Door and Lancelot the last time this came up, which is to say I found the second or third uh, site that came up in Google results for Arthurian legend. So take it with a, an appropriate grain of salt. This is from, I think, Arthurian-Legend.com. But the whole deal is that... Uh, King Arthur decided he needed a wife. The barons or lords or whomever wouldn't leave him alone unless he was married. And so he enlisted the help of Merlin to play matchmaker. And Merlin said, who do you like the most in the kingdom? Who are your sights set on? And he identified Guinevere. And Merlin was like, that is not a good idea. That is never going to work out. She'll cause you nothing but trouble. And she's totally boning Lancelot. And this is just not a good luck at all. But Arthur was undeterred. And so Merlin made the match. And the uh, marriage ceremony was very elaborate. And there was like a 100 knights that came with her and a, a huge bridal party and marriage celebration that went on for days and days and knights were off doing like side quests and things and then coming back and the marriage was still going on. It was all very elaborate and festive. But what I thought was interesting from Arthurian-Legend.com was this piece that said that the marriage ceremony itself was marked by the appearance of a white heart, that's H-A-R-T, a deer, that came running into the hall with a white Bratchet, which I guess is a female hunting dog, chasing after it, closely followed by 60 black hounds. As the heart ran around the tables, the Bratchet bit a piece out of its buttock and it leaped into the air, unseating a knight from his chair in the process. So this, to me, at least has echoes of the white horse that we've seen an awful lot in Twin Peaks, but that's about as far as I got with the Arthurian legend research. So That sounds very go-home-heart-you're-drunk to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it, Janie E. kisses Coop on the head, and there's kind of a flicker of something. Uh, and, you know, I think he he touches the number seven for Lucky Seven Insurance on one of the flower folders. Uh, then then we, we shift to one of our favorite and most haunting scenes in the show. I, somehow this show makes a traffic light hanging in the wind like a deeply disturbing and or moving um, image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, from my standpoint, the traffic light is second only to Albert dropping an F-bomb on Gene Kelly as my absolute favorite moment of this episode. And I am genuinely embarrassed to admit how much of my time in the early 90s was spent trying to sync up the pattern of the traffic light signals with events in the plot in the original series. I was never able to do it, but but I was always like, okay, so a yellow light is followed by this, a red light means that. Never could do it, but spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. And this time, you know, the image of the light, instead of being, you know, accompanied by, I don't know, some like mournful version of like Laura's theme or something like that, it's those distorted kind of like Black Lodge electrical sounds that we heard and it seemed like episode one or two, I can't remember which one, whenever Coop's trying to get out, I think it, it seemed like a similar uh, sound to that, uh, which I'm not sure if there was anything quite like that in the original series. No, no I don't think so. You're talking about so. the uh, the sort of crackling song right. and the yeah. phonograph. Yeah, yeah. That uh, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark says. Yeah, that, something along that he's lines. got. Yeah. Surely we can call him the giant. The artist formerly known as the giant. <laughs> the artist yeah, formerly exactly. known as the giant. Exactly. Uh, 
I, can I go back and talk about just the whole Dougie sequence since oh, yeah, I've been yeah, out for course, a few weeks course, and kind of voice a different uh, opinion to Ken? I know this, this seems like, you know, from different kind of recaps and articles I've read, the whole Dougie thing or good coop, you know, as Dougie, it does seem like it's trying a lot of viewers' patience, but I like it. I don't know. it. There's something sort of haunting and about Dougie and there's just some weird metaphor for sort of the strangeness of being human uh, and just simple things that he has trouble doing and I know it, it's slow and I know it's absurd but there are just little moments of poignancy in it that, that redeem it for me and I have to say that my favorite new music for Twin Peaks to Return is I guess the Johnny Jewel song that was used instead of a performance um you know, at the roadhouse uh, at the end of episode five, and it continues into episode six. And it's sort of is some sort of, I don't know what we're going to call it, Dougie's theme. Uh, I think the song itself is called Windswept, but that I like that kind of melancholy, you know, kind of vibe to it. And I, I don't know. I, I, I there's just a weird absurdity to, to seeing things like Mrs. Vicky's chips uh, and like brand placement <laughs> in the new Twin Peaks. Like just, I don't know. It, it, it appeals to me. And um, just like him watching, you know, like, with the clapper, I understand how it could try people's patience, but I'm okay with it. And one thing I, I keep being surprised by with all with, especially with episode uh, five and six, because as with so many other people, I, you know, binge the first four and then kind of binge them again, you know, a week later, but watching five and six, how quickly time's going by for me, you know, I always like, we'll kind of check my watch and it'll be like nine thirty-five or something. Right. Like there's only, you know, 15 or 20 more minutes. And, it kind of engrosses me in a way that not many other shows do, even though the pace is glacial. So um, I am weirdly hypnotized uh, and okay with the Dougie scenes. Although I do understand how they could be trying people's patience. But for me, I just find like the absurd kind of domestic drama. And I thought the scenes between uh, Naomi Watts and, and Kyle McLaughlin were, were really funny in these, in this episode. So that's it in defense of Dougie. That's a that's a lovely and eloquent defense, and I really like it. I just want to ask the question, if you're David Lynch and Mark Frost, and you have Kyle McLaughlin, obviously they're getting a lot out of Kyle McLaughlin. He's playing a whole range of parts very, very well, and he's doing a tremendous job. But he's healthy and looks like a slightly older version of the original recipe, Dale Cooper, that everybody loved so much. Why wouldn't you want to take the opportunity to write that character again? And maybe they do at some point, maybe in somewhere in these 18 hours we're going to get it. But it just seems like a huge missed opportunity that you would go six hours of a show without putting the the really fun Dale Cooper character just back in our lives. I would think he would be as fun to write and as fun to watch McLaughlin play again as he would be for us. But maybe that's the definitional fallacy of fan service, that we all think that what we want out of something is exactly what the actors and writers and creators want, too. I'm just, I'm just shocked thinking about that, that we've been six hours into this and we've never gotten to see McLaughlin do that specific thing. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, we're all waiting for it, but you know, I, I've, I'm, I've been relatively patient with Dougie Coop. I don't, I, I see it. I see that the notion of how many aspects of life and what people do are absurd, and it Dougie is so slowed down that we all get to experience the absurdity of life through him. And you know, I, I know Jeff, you compared it to to Peter Sellers' performance in Being There, which is really apt. Right. Um, I, I'm enjoying it, and and I think it's good. But at the same time, I am getting anxious. And really, we don't. We haven't left Dougie's house. We're still there because we go from the the scene of the 
the traffic light at Sparkwood and 21 in Twin Peaks, we presume, to uh, Philip Gerard or Mike in the Black Lodge, who's kind of shuffling around or putting his arm out. Uh, Kyle, you mentioned it seems like he's looking for something in the dark that he can't see, which I, I thought that as well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's just the impression I get. It's like he's looking for the, the the places where he can break through and communicate, but he can't quite discern where they are, which given what we think about people who live in the lodges, uh, if, if he can't figure out a way to get to him, that uh, that probably says something about how far gone he is. Right. And what he says is he says, wake up, wake up, you know, don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die, which, you know, that's that's uh, we, we all we all agree with that, <laughs> I think. Uh <laughs> Um, and then Coop starts reviewing these insurance files and we, there's this kind of weird and, and interesting bit where these little dots of green light appear on the pages from the case files that he's reviewing. And he start he takes a, a pencil, he holds it in his hand like with, with a fist, not like somebody who actually knows how to use a pencil. And he starts scrawling and circling things, making stairs, what would appear to be stairs, or a, uh, and then making what appear to be ladders. It reminded me of, like, chutes and ladders mm-hmm. for yeah, some reason. I saw the same thing. Setup. <clears throat> uh, although there are no stairs and chutes and ladders, but because there's some sort of spiral formations, lines drawn from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. And, you know, we we don't really know what's going on, um, but, Kyle, I think you had a few thoughts on on the lights and what's going on. Yeah, we've got we've got the lights, which clearly have to be related to the images we saw above the slot machines in the casino, and of course the green light on Tony's face when he was lying. What we don't know yet is is it related to the yellow light that Carl sees ascending from the child later in the episode, or is it related to the light that uh, that's shown on Cooper when Laura Palmer took her face off? We don't we don't really know that yet. Uh, but what we do get off of this is we see the name. Anthony Sinclair, uh, listed as the agent on a lot of these files. A couple of them, the detectives' names appear important. Uh, Anthony Sinclair has to be Tony, the guy that he called out as a liar, uh, there in the office. And as far as what they are, I agree they look like a ladder and stairs, but, but they look like it so much that I, I can't imagine that, that that's literally accurate. And what I'm wondering is, uh, are the stairs uh, actually the chevron floor pattern of the Black Lodge, and are the ladders uh, railroad tracks? Because, of course, we saw Doppelcooper having breakfast with his crew by the railroad tracks in the premiere. We know that Bob killed Laura in a railroad car. Uh, it just seems too obviously a ladder and stairs for me to believe that it's literally a ladder and stairs. Well, I would say that that yellow light is some special delivery Garmin Bosia on its way to the Black Lodge. Um, <laughs> oh gosh! I mean, I, I I really do. I really that's what I think. I think it is. I think that that uh, we don't know exactly what Richard Horn's status is, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But you know, I, I think that that seems to be the most reasonable option. I, I'm now uh, even more depressed. So it's like some <laughs> some visible manifestation, I guess, of pain and suffering and evil that's like coming up from the you know symbolically from the insurance forms. That, well, that remember the only the only, so no 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 no. I'm I'm talking about the light that comes up from the boy at the intersection oh, of okay. Twin Peaks. Yeah. Uh, no 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 not the not the insurance. Those are those are green lights. I thought green lights. Yeah, little yeah. dots of green lights. Uh, yeah. You know, representing fraud, right? Representing right. fraud or, or deceit. Right. Um. But no, the yellow light that rises up from the boy. Remember, the only person who appears to see that is Carl, right? And and Carl has been visited before, right? So he probably he's, has he's the ability places, to see. Yeah. 
he's been places and in the secret history he's he has a, his own kind of like alien abduction right. uh situation so i think he has sort of a gift of sight mm-hmm. and so he can see what was actually going on in that scene but but we'll we'll talk about it again when we get there I was interested, yeah, uh, one of my questions on my notes here is like, what's the nature of, I was calling them the lodge lights, um, how they work, what they kind of outline or, or illuminate on these forms. And it does seem, as Kyle said, that, yeah, we're, we're Tom Sizemore's characters, Anthony Sinclair, he does give you know them later to his boss, who's able to, to read something and the, the childish scribbles here. Um, but I was also reminded in the way he held the pencil, isn't that the way he holds the toothpaste uh, at the end of uh, season two? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, w- I was reminded of that. And yeah, I also thought of kind of shoots and ladders. And I mean, he's literally kind of connecting the dots and connecting these kind of things and drawing. Uh, it reminded me of, you know, Coop's intuitive methods, you know, in, uh, you know, uh, season one, you know, where he's throwing rocks at bottles, you know, and he has this kind of uh, his, his Tibetan method of sort of intuitive, unorthodox detection. Uh, I saw a glimmer of that in this sequence. Yeah. In your reckoning, JR, is the idea that the yeah. lights are specifically indicating parts of the form that indicate pain and suffering? Is it or fraud? No, 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 no. Again, I'm being misinterpreted. Uh, I apologize. I, I no, it's, it's okay. It, I should have been clear. The yellow light that comes up from the boy and his mother after he's been, they've been run over in the street, that yellow light represents Garmambosia. The green light that flashes on Tony's face and their little uh, sort of tiny specks of green light on these forms, I think the green light must represent okay, fraud so or deceit. Places in the files where fraud is evident. Or right, or there's a clue okay, to so the fraud are, that's going those on. Those are green lights, not yellow on the piles? I I, I thought they were green, They're but so tiny, they're I yellow. Can't tell. I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it now um, and I can't tell. I'm also slightly colorblind. Yeah, right. That's that's how I interpreted it at the time. But uh, moving on from the insurance forms, Albert is doing some very very important work while Gordon is drinking a fine Bordeaux. <laughs> well, no, I think I think I think Kyle. Before yeah. before uh, you start, Ken, Kyle, you may have had had some insight as to uh, as as a reference here. We we it may be time again for. Kyle's oh, 70s yeah. conspiracy corner. Yes, and and this one's a fairly minor one, but I, I think it's important that I do think this is a 70s reference here because we don't see Gordon, we just hear him dispatching his lackey into the field while he's being served wine by a woman. I think he's Charles Townsend from Charlie's Angels. The question is is Tamara the one serving oh, him the please wine? Please God, no. The question none please of us no. want to ask. I, I t- Wow, Jr. You you are taking what was already a depressing episode, and you're making it I've even got worse. To come. I have not started <laughs> I yet, Kyle. I have oh not yet goodness. begun to get you all down. Oh my goodness, I've I've got a wow. walker coming. Don't 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 doubt it. But anyway, go ahead with your fun Man, beverage. Corner, Kyle's Ken. conspiracy Yikes. corner and Ken's beverage corner back to back. So I want to talk about wine, of course, because Gordon is drinking a fine Bordeaux, and it's interesting to me because Bordeaux grapes grow really well in the state of Washington, where original flavor Twin Peaks is set, and where at least some portions of current Twin Peaks is set, and where Kyle McLaughlin is from. 
Kyle McLaughlin is a proud son of Yakima, Washington, and he has become a very successful winemaker in Washington. And if you follow Kyle McLaughlin on Twitter, as I do, and uh, <laughs> which is an experience I highly recommend because he is just a joyful individual who loves life and will share any meme about coffee that you send to him and, <laughs> and has been doing so for years, the only thing he talks about besides coffee and his fans is wine. He's a great, great lover of wine and apparently an expert on various aspects of the production of wine, including barrels. He's quite a savant on the effects of barrel aging on wine, and he's really, really studied that uh, very hard. So, his winery is called Pursued by Bear, and uh, he it produces Cabernet, which is a classic Bordeaux grape, and it is very much loved. There's a site called vinepair.com that calls Pursued by Bears Cabernet the best celebrity wine on the market. So he's he's killing it, apparently. And uh, I did get to wondering if Gordon could be drinking uh, something other than a fine Bordeaux from Bordeaux, if his fancy led him there. Certainly, if we ever return to Twin Peaks for our primary action in this series, he might, for example, go with uh, a blend of classic Bordeaux grapes, a Bordeaux blend, as they're known from Walla Walla, which is called Night Maurice Night Owl Estate Blend, which has an extremely creepy drawing of an owl on the label, which I think would be an especially apt beverage for a Twin Peaks viewing. This has been Ken's Beverage Corner. And I'd like to add to that that uh, all of our listeners should try to find, uh, you know, just Google Kyle McLaughlin National Wine Day. And there's a, a photo taken a few weeks ago of Kyle McLaughlin fondling uh, grapes that should be meditated on, distributed widely, uh, and just... Yeah, it's completely delightful. I pasted into our show notes along with a uh, tweet from somebody who who (laughs) said, find yourself someone who gently caresses you the way Kyle McLaughlin gently caresses these grapes. (laughs) Oh, it's it's good advice. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, So speaking of beverages, we are in a bar. Vax Max's Max Vaughn's bar. I've done some more research on this. Could I add? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, originally, we were thinking it was Max von Sito, Um and I think a more likely source yeah. for it is Max von Meyerling, who was uh, the butler played by Eric von Stronheim in the film Sunset Boulevard, which is on record as being one of David Lynch's favorite films. Um, and in that film, uh, oh. I think Max von Meyerling was like a former a director. He used to be a director and now he's been kind of reduced to being, I think Gloria Swanson's butler and kind of tending to her parties and kind of keeping her from finding out the reality of her kind of situation. Uh, and I think they might, I think he might be married to her as well. I can't remember, but that was after doing some more research on the Max Vaughn part of the bar. I think more likely it's, it's from Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Okay, see, I was going to do an addendum to Ken's beverage corner that I thought it was Max Von Cito, and And it made me think of strange brew. That's great, though, that Sunset Boulevard research. That's that's actual insight from this podcast. That was really good. Yeah. Wait, wait, so, yeah. anyway, why are we in a bar? I forgot. Because uh, Albert knows where uh, where she drinks. Who has who he found? Uh, that, w- that would be Diane, played by Laura Dern. So, Laura Dern is playing Diane, and let's see. Yeah, I think that's pretty much all we get out of this scene. She looks uh, wild, right? She's got this, like, weird platinum wig. Her nails are painted red, white, and blue. And she's apparently in like the only bar in the entire United States 25 years after Twin Peaks where you can smoke. Um, right. 
So, yeah, where I mean, maybe Albert had to leave the country. I don't know. Speaking of Albert, I, I don't want to uh, pass over what is, in my opinion, the greatest Albert moment ever. And that is saying something when he gets out of the car uh, in the rain with his umbrella and and has uh, has one of the great Albert exclamations that I intend yeah. to uh, use as my ringtone. <laughs> Nice. Now that I don't know if that no, came that through good. on my headphones or not, but you guys are laughing. This this is also an example. <laughs> this is also an example of JR being right corner. This is something that JR called several episodes ago. He said it's going to be Diane and she's going to be played by Laura Dern. So as as we've learned, the important thing is JR was right. Yeah. Okay, so we're we're back in Twin Peaks. Uh at, now we've got an encounter between Red who I believe Red is, isn't Red supposed to be Shelly's husband? Or is that something we just surmised by the way that he was kind of looking at her? I think he was just, out? yeah, he might have There's just been checking connection. her out, you know, at the bar and, and shooting her, you know, uh, shooting her with his, his uh, pistol fingers. So it's un- unclear their connection. I see. He certainly seems to be new to Twin Peaks from his comments to Richard Horn. Yeah, that's right. He does. But so this is it's interesting. So, you know, the character Red here is played by Balthazar Getty, which I thought, I wouldn't see again in a David Lynch film because there was an interview back around when Lost Highway came out where Balthazar Getty said some really kind of stupid and unfair things about David Lynch. And Ken, I think you've got a more specific memory or grasp of that article than anybody else. Well, the piece is from Rolling Stone, I think, and it was written by David Foster Wallace. It's really an, a remarkable piece of journalism and a great read. It holds up really well to this day, not just for people who are obsessed with Lynch and Lynch's process, but... Uh, David Foster Wallace was interviewing people on the set of Lost Highway. So Lost Highway was being filmed. And yeah, Getty said some really improvident things about Lynch. And he came off like uh, an entitled teenage asshole. He's the son of uh, a bunch of millionaires and billionaires, right? He's the he's the scion of an incredibly wealthy family who got into acting and was successful at it. So you can understand how he would come off as uh, that way. There's a piece much later, maybe Vanity Fair, from just a few years ago about the ways in which he put his life back together and sort of found enlightenment after a lot of years of being a shitty Hollywood douchebag. So maybe this version of Balthazar Getty gets along with Lynch better, or maybe they buried the hatchet for some other reason some years ago. My my own personal theory is that maybe they go and do transcendental meditation together, because that seems about right for someone who's found enlightenment and wants to bond with David Lynch. But what do I know. So this new character of Red is really busting out some fake judo and uh, has really kind of trying to push and test Richard Horn, who's the kind of small time local drug dealer having the encounter with the big time drug dealer there. And they're all, you know, high on cocaine, you know, kind of stomping and being kind of really irritating. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, yeah, no, it's interesting because at one point he, he says, Red says to Horn that I will saw your head open and eat your brains if you fuck me over, which like occurs to me like that's literally what the spectral figure did to Sam and Tracy, right? He ripped over their heads and ate their brains as far as we can tell from those pictures that Preston, uh, that Tamara Preston showed us. So that's something. Uh, And then he does this bit where he throws a coin into the air and it stays there and Richard Horn looks up at it and then it's in his mouth and then it goes from his mouth to his, to back into Red's hand. So, you know, clearly he's doing some sort of magic. So, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to talk here about 
who we think Richard Horn's parents are. I know we talked about this in the last episode. And Kyle, you had a, a sort of spirited argument for why this couldn't be Audrey's child uh, because of the high regard you have for her uh, sexual morality. I'm not so sure about that. And I was thinking about this some more. Remember that Audrey was unfortunately forced into taking heroin at One-Eyed Jack's when she was captured there for, for and, and for several days, right? They had had her on heroin. Right. And we don't know how that recovery went. We do know that she was in a uh, explosion at the bank that we can only assume left her in a lot of pain, uh, both from internal injuries as well as from burns on her skin. You know, and one could imagine her falling into an opiate addiction uh, that uh, Mr. C was able to take advantage of. And, you know, that would explain why uh, Richard Horn is such a complete shit. But it's uh, kind of dark. And I think, Ken, you said that you're going to quit if that's the case. Yeah, I like doing this podcast a lot, but I, that would be so dark. My, my poor favorite character, Audrey Horn, like, I, I understand they blew her up at the end of the last series, but this seems worse than blowing her up in a bank vault, uh, sentencing her to some sort of relationship with evil Cooper and this horrible, horrible horrible offspring. That that would be so depressing to me. And if Richard Horn is Audrey's son, then that whole dime coming out of the mouth thing is the worst substitute for a cherry stem tied in a knot Seriously. ever. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Now, my, my alternative theory here is that Red is, in fact, the grandson of Mrs. Tremond, who said, my grandson is studying magic oh. and just has some sort of prematurely great. Hey, I like that. Yeah. That's a great theory. Yeah. So yeah. And and, yeah. and that that would tie him into, you know, being part of this Black Lodge collective. Right. Where he would be keyed into things like sawing people's heads off and eating their brains. Well and the gray hair the prematurely gray hair ties into uh to the Black Lodge as well because Leland, of course, as we know, after he killed Jacques Renault, who was possess- and he was possessed by Bob, his hair turned gray yeah, overnight. That's true, though Red's got more of a kind of salt and pepper thing going on. Well, maybe he's not completely evil yet. Right. He didn't rape his daughter for, you know, a decade and then murder her. Didn't run over any kids in his truck either. <laughs> that we know about. Although he could, you know, potentially because of the 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 manner in which he in, engaged with Richard Horn, perhaps he's partially responsible for goading. There's like a dram shop action. Yeah, yeah, right. If you, if, you, if you call the coked out weirdo kid a kid enough that it bothers him so much that he can't uh, just like stop his car at a stop sign, then yeah, maybe there's some partial liability for him, but... Anyway, all, is, all these people. This are is terrible. the new Paul's graph. This <laughs> right, is the new Paul's right. graph. We're we're, we're looking right. at how far back we trace proximate cause. That's right. First of all, right. you can have Paul's graph, but stay away from dram shops. Dram shops are my corner. <laughs> okay, sorry. Could I say a couple more things about the previous scene? Just mainly bashing Balthazar Getty because I was going to come back. At, I had a couple of pull quotes. I actually found the David Lynch keeps his head, which was in Premier Magazine in 1996, and it was before Lost Highway came out, the David Foster Wallace quote. Uh, just a couple of things. Okay, yeah. It, uh, <laughs> it's, um, and this is from a footnote. Uh, Balthazar Getty, about whom the less said the better, probably, except maybe to say that he looks sort of like Tom Hanks and John Cusack and Charlie Sheen all mashed together and then emptied of some vital essence. He's not particularly tall, but he looks tall in Lost Highway's footage because he has extremely poor posture, and David Lynch has, for some reason, instructed him to exaggerate the poor posture. This is a good, this next sentence I like. As a hot young male actor, Balthazar Getty is to Leonardo DiCaprio roughly what a Ford Escort is to a Lexus. Uh, and then 
later on, he goes through this whole other thing, and then he says, okay, fuck it. The single most annoying thing about Balthazar Getty was that whenever David Lynch was around, Getty would be very unctuous and over-respectful and ass-kissy, but when Lynch wasn't around, Getty would make fun of him and do an unkind imitation of his distinctive speaking voice that wasn't a very good imitation, but was clearly intended to be disrespectful and mean. I remember that footnote so vividly. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yes. So that's right. Me too. Yeah, David Me too. Foster Wallace has permanently poisoned Balthazar Getty in all of our minds and hearts, you know, 25, 20 years later, uh, because of yes. that footnote alone. It wasn't actually a direct quote from Getty either. It was reported secondhand in this footnote without any actual quotes. But we have assumed so much about Getty based on that single footnote. It's it's the Caroline Products footnote fo- footnote four of Balthazar Getty. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yes. Well, Paul Scrapp and Caroline Price. I should point out that maybe after the profile I read that made him seem okay, there was another one that went sort of viral from the Times UK, and BuzzFeed picked it up from just a couple years ago, in which they asked Balthazar Getty what a day in his life was like, and he said he never gets up before 11, and he has a complex procedure for his face with toners, exfoliators, and serums that he gets from a doctor in Beverly Hills, and then he watches an hour or two of news on CNN or the BBC, then gets out on one of his motorbikes anyone who's anyone has been to his parties he's 41 years old by the way um and how rich am i i don't know so all this got picked up by buzzfeed and people were furious and tweeting angry things about what a dick he is so i guess the rehabilitation of balthasar getty was brief yeah well i mean we've i think we've covered this topic at this point Uh, (laughs) i'm sorry but some of the quotes were so good no no i'm really glad you read it because it's i didn't realize that it was burned into my heart yeah. Um, Apparently, it's burned in all of our hearts. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yes. Anyway, so I was about to say when I watched this episode the first time, I missed a crucial detail, which is that as we're introduced to Carl, to- Carl Rod, or reintroduced to him, he was in Firewalk with me. He ran the, tra- the Fat Trout Trailer Park in Deer Meadow, Ar- Oregon, that Chester Desmond was investigating. He's And he's a fantastic cur- character. You know, he's he's been places, he doesn't want to go anywhere else. Uh, and he just has this massive amount of experience that that hangs on him. And you see him here. But anyway, it, in this scene where we first go back to the Fat Trout Trailer Park, the sign actually says New Fat Trout Trailer Park. Now, I missed this detail, which drove me nuts because Carl subsequently takes a short drive into town, which you know almost certainly puts him in Twin Peaks. But – that's impossible if he's in Deer Meadow because Deer Meadow's got to be at least several hours away, given that Twin Peaks is supposed to be close to the border with Canada. I had I posted about this on Facebook. I was sending angry text messages like the night I was watching the episode. I could not believe they were doing this kind of retcon. And then I started to think, well, maybe Deer Meadow has turned into Twin Peaks. They are now the same place since Deer Meadow is like the doppelganger of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks has become evil, and that's why, uh, you know, now Carl's trailer park is in Twin Peaks. We know that that Carl is from Twin Peaks originally. That's in the secret history. So that's not a surprise that he would end up in Twin Peaks. But because I missed, you know, now I know that, that it had the sign that says new Fat Trout Trailer Park. Uh, that's really the explanation. Carl just started a new trailer park in Twin Peaks. I think that's what we have to assume. Although we're going to keep in the back of my mind this idea of Twin Peaks turning into Deer Meadow with, you know, assholes at the sheriff's department and uh, general nasty people all around, which, you know, seems to be kind of the case. Anyway, Carl uh, gets into 
a, a van with Mickey who lives at the trailer park who also needs a ride. Uh, Mickey's wife, Linda. And remember what the artist formerly known as the giant said about Linda and Richard. I know you're highly resistant to this, uh, Kyle. Um, but you know, we, we yes. it, one does think about Linda. And of course there is a, a, a Richard running around. Carl is, is worried about death, but or not, he's, he's waiting for the hammer to come down on him. Unrelated to that. He's smoked every fucking day for 75 years. <laughs> <laughs> I have a point about that, actually. Go ahead. So it's amazing to me that David Lynch still smokes. Lynch is not young. Harry Dean Stanton is 90, but Lynch is not young. And he just did a thing where he, quote, broke down, end quote, the first four episodes of Twin Peaks with somebody at Cannes. And of course, he did no breaking down at all and provided no insight because that's what he does in interviews. And people just sort of, or the interviewer just sort of asked him questions and he just said like, yes, that's there or whatever. But he did in the middle of the interview whip out a drawing of a table that he's working on. They asked him sort of, what do you do with your days? And he said, I've got this garage and I'm building this table. And the table has everything that I need for my day in it. It has a place where I can keep coffee and it has a place where I can keep my cigarettes and a place to keep my lighter. And I just can't believe he's still smoking at this age. That can't be healthy. And so when Carl Robb had that line, uh, I thought, first of all, how Harry Dean to see Harry Dean again. And second of all, like that's more Lynch meta defensiveness. Like, I've smoked every day for 75 years. I'm fine. Well, I, I think he's smoking less, but they're bigger cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, not small styrofoam cigarettes anymore. <laughs> It was, one, it was 20 little ones, and now it's 10 big, fat cigarettes, like Belmondo. And, uh, they're they're camel wives. Yeah. <laughs> Kyle, I think you had a few thoughts to add. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm glad you're getting to enjoy periodically being proven right, because uh, you know that should happen to at least one of us. Um, uh, I, I don't know that that's going to happen with me. And, and when, of course, when he said Linda, and he talked about her getting the electric wheelchair, and then Carl makes the comment about the war, which clearly indicates that she's a, uh, a disabled veteran. Um, my first thought, of course, was that Richard and Linda was, was going to turn out to be coked up Richard running over wheelchair bound Linda, um, which would have sucked, but which would have been more uplifting than what actually happened. Uh, and then the other thing I thought by the end of the episode, um, you know, we got this Linda's disability that appears to be related to her military service. We've got Carl making a comment on the war. We've, we later find out that Frank Truman's son was a soldier. I mean, we're, we're getting some interesting ancillary comments about military service in this episode, which is interesting because we don't really get any development with the Buckhorn storyline at all. Uh, but there is that headless body in Buckhorn with the classified military fingerprints. And it's just interesting to me that we get these little tidbits of military service that don't really seem to have anything to do with the, the episode itself. I, I'd also, um, I'd like to introduce Carl Rod, I guess, as an exhibit. Um, his life seems to me it has improved uh, since we saw him at the original Fat Trout trailer park in Fire Walk With Me. Uh, I think, Ken, you mostly said that people's lives had gotten worse, the people we see in Twin Peaks. Maybe he's an exception to this, but I always, he was probably my favorite new character um, besides perhaps the woodsman uh, who was introduced to us in uh, Fire Walk With Me. And just the level of disgruntlement that Carl Rod showed for everything, you know, just that like the, this only Harry Dean Stanton, I felt like could have captured it. The sense of, uh, you know, just more shit I got to do in the sign on his door. Right. <laughs> it's like never, ever, ever <laughs> disturbed before 10 AM. 
as I've gotten older, I think I feel more and more that way and more and more identify with Carl Rod. And he, he's, he's moved, he's opened a new and seemingly improved trailer park. He seems like he's uh, entered into some sense of a, a, a more of a community, more of a sense of oneness and peace with himself. Carl Rod's life seems to me better than the last time we saw him. And I just, he was, he's one of my favorite characters. And I was, I was so happy to see him, even though what happened to him was, was terrible. Yeah, that's a great point. And I co-sign everything you said about him being a great addition to the Twin Peaks world. Lynch and Frost must have liked him a lot because they took him from Fire Walk with me and then they added this backstory and the secret history about how he went to Twin Peaks High and all this stuff, even though the trailer park was up in Oregon. Uh, it was it was really great to see him. And of course, he has that moment in Fire Walk with me where he calls the extremely strong coffee, Good Morning America, Good morning, America. which, <laughs> yes, which we yes. all love so much. Yeah, who doesn't love Carl Rod? He's the best. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very he's a he's a great actor and we're all happy to see him in the show and I do think he's got a better life seemingly than he did in Deer Meadow, although probably anybody would have a better life uh, if there were not in Deer Meadow. Um, so we're back at the Double R Diner. Miriam and Heidi are really cannot stop giggling and laughing about cupcakes and pies, and Miriam has this sort of like like the secret theory. That wherever she goes, there will be some uh, dessert or confection item with her name on it, and uh, this 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 prophecy to herself, this promise to herself, has come true yet again uh, with two slices of pie with her name on it. Uh, she, you know, Kyle, I know you're concerned about her fiscal responsibility. Yes, yes, because she she gives she leaves a very big tip uh, for for Shelley and for Heidi, uh, and and as much as I loved absolutely loved the original series callback of Heidi just standing there giggling, which is all she ever did in the original series, you know Shelley talks about treating the customer, and this this is what a day or two after she's given Becky her last seventy two bucks, and so I'm wondering whether Shelley is the secret billionaire behind the glass box research, and and I have a theory about Miriam who who later kind of comes into play uh, in the scene that the scenes that follow. Um, I'm wondering maybe she's uh, one of these denizens of the Black Lodge, you know, one of these Dougie doppelgangers herself, and maybe she's getting the same signal over the cupcakes and pies that Cooper was getting in the casino. This is the slot machine that's going to pay off. What's the payoff, though? Well, she gets to eat a, a cupcake or a slice of pie. Oh, see, I'm already a couple steps ahead. Like, she's going to be there to see a child be brutally murdered. <sighs> well, I, I think she's going to wind up being the critical witness against Richard Horn. You know, I'm hoping that there will be some justice in the world, but probably Chad's going to be the one to go investigate and he's just going to mess it all up no it's true i mean good guys in this show are wild about pie and bad guys are wild about pain and sorrow so yeah you might have something there hey so uh so the podcast is over right and we don't have to talk about this next scene involving running down a kid like we're just we're just done like everybody's enjoyed discussing this episode and we'll see you next week everybody (laughs) kyle i can't i can't wait to sample the sound of you going (sighs) <laughs> when I mentioned the kid dying just a minute ago, um, okay. so I can just insert into, into every show uh, all the time. Yeah, so 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 we're we're coming up on you know probably I don't I don't know there have been a lot of really difficult scenes in this show, but there's nothing like a, a um, this really. Richard Horn is a complete asshole. He's uh, talking to himself. He's completely strung out. He keeps driving his big truck faster and faster and faster. And at the same time, Carl is enjoying 
the beautiful trees, not pine trees, I should note. Uh, they're, I think they look like oak trees, but real big, beautiful trees overhead. Uh, it, it seems like it's kind of springtime based on the weather, early spring maybe. And there's a mother with a, a child, a boy, and they're kind of playing a game where the boy runs ahead and then the mother runs up to him and as if they're kind of playing a kind of freeze tag or something. And, you know, he's, Carl smiles at it. He's, He's enjoying it. And then, you know, the worst possible thing that could happen happens as the, as the boy and her mother approach the crosswalk at an intersection. Uh, there's a, a, some sort of delivery driver in his truck and he, he waves them forward as they hesitantly wonder if they can cross because they're, they're, they're at a stop sign. And of course, what happens, but the mother actually encourages the child to go forward because the child's scared to cross the, the street. And Richard Horn decides he's he he doesn't want to stop where all the other cars are stopped, so he he swerves into the wrong lane. This immediately made me think of the scene in Firewalk with Me, where Leland is with Laura in his convertible, and Mike uh, shows up or, or or Philip Gerard shows up, and in in his truck or I think it's like a a trailer, um, a camper. And his, he pulls up next to them and starts screaming and raging. And in that circumstance, what happened? I think he, he drove off the road and, and through an intersection because he didn't want to wait for, uh, an old woman with a walker and somebody helping her crossing the street. And so he pulls up on the other side of the road to, to scream at Leland about how he stole the corn. And instead here, Richard just flies through the intersection, actually sees the kid and like makes some sort of motion at the kid. Like he needs to get out of the way, even though he's going like 70 or something. And just, you know, we have a fully graphic scene. That's like more terrible. I mean, I'm, I'm sure all of you felt this really badly. Kyle and I may have felt it a little bit more strongly as the parents of children. I don't know, but God, it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a very disturbing scene. I mean, there was no, there's no doing things by implication and showing the reactions. You know, we saw in the previous episode, the little boy go over to Dougie's car and you kind of worried, <clears throat> excuse me, is he going to get blown up? And, and then of course he's run off by the car thieves. And then they focus on the little boy as the car blows up and you don't actually see these guys blown to bits by this bomb in the car. Uh, here you see it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, right there. And I, I think a little bit gratuitous. Uh, and, and I will say this is, this is a hard series to jump onto. Uh, and I think this is probably the jumping off point. I'll tell you, I watched it with my wife and I doubt seriously whether my wife's going to be watching next week's episode with me. So it was, it was a tough scene to take. Yeah. This is definitely not Del Mibbler's glasses flying through the air. In terms of how they represented the violence. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, my wife is constantly looking for a jumping off point. She wants very much to listen to me on the podcast and never watch another minute of the uh, series. So I don't know. This, this may have been the end for her as well, but it's, it is really, really tough to take. I, I had the same association as, as JR with the scene with Mike, uh, or Philip Gerard in Fire Walk with me. So that's, it's good to see that somebody else had that same thought. I'd, we should probably mention, too, that Miriam is a witness here, that she's standing frozen with her coffees to go from the double R and uh, pegs Richard Horn, and he seems to see her as he's driving away from the accident. Right. So that could be significant for plot purposes. Totally, this was such a, a strange scene for me, uh, because perhaps this is me distancing myself emotionally in some way from what actually happens, but there are... I You could almost read certain parts of the way in which the film is seen, almost in the, in the scene itself 
almost coming off as parody in the beginning of the scene. The one moment for me I'm thinking of is the, the, the driver who waves the child on after the child's hit covers his face in this way that almost seems like a, a parody of like a grieving kind of gesture. But then as the scene and, and just the way it's kind of, it almost seems like, I don't know. I, I feel like this type of scene, I, I feel like there's somewhere where this has been done before, almost as like an example of like gratuitous, like exploitative filmmaking, you know, or like writing in some way of coming up with a scene in which a child gets hit. And then if you actually go there, um, you're taking advantage of your audience. Uh, but then as the scene went on, and I think a lot of this was due to uh, Harry Dean Stanton's performance uh, and maybe my affection for the character of kind of Carl Rudd, but the scene in which he, I saw, I could see it as, as J.R. you're talking about Garmin Bazia leaving the child's body. I saw it as just like his soul uh, right. leaving. And if the Garmin Bazia is leaving, I don't think, I think it's leaving, you know, and going to a place of freedom and release. I don't think it's being, you know, trapped or captured by an evil lodge spirit. Um, it's, it's going up into a place of, you know, freedom, happiness, release, I guess. Um, but uh, that, but then the, the reaction shots, it was, it was such a, by the end of it, I was, I was, I was, you know, very moved, very heartbroken. And in the initial moments of it, I almost saw it reading as a parody of this type of really extreme over the top scene. But by the end I was, I was deeply moved. And, um, for me, the greatest scene Lynch ever shot, uh, and I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'll come, it made me think of this. I don't think it's as, as great as a scene in any way, but is the scene in which, uh, Maddie's killed, uh, in whatever episode that is a season two. And we go back and forth between, you know, this revelation that Leland, uh, is possessed by Bob, this really graphic murder of, uh, Maddie. And then we cut back between that to Coop. And Bobby Briggs and Senior Drill Cup uh, and the Log Lady and Sheriff Truman at the Roadhouse listening to "Rockin' Back Inside My Heart" uh, by Julie Cruz, and just this communal grief uh, right. that's kind of and it's yeah. it's just this mysterious scene and it's just like this sadness kind of enters the room and it just seems like this lament for everything and it's unspoken and it for me it's 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 lynch at its finest and this juxtaposition of this extremity of kind of tones uh and this you know it was there ever a a, a show better about showing grieving you know and it and the, have had many people crying and i thought that was the the scene and uh, of the just the townspeople's reactions and the end of it and then carl rod after having this little moment of zen in the park you know, witnessing this, uh, it was, it was a, a really strange scene. <laughs> right. It's interesting. Cause I actually found out today, although as I watched this, I was immediately thinking about the scene in firewalk with me with, with Mike and Leland in the car. I, I found out today that apparently this is the exact same intersection. I wondered that about scene. that. Yeah, of course. And it's, it, it's shot differently in firewalk with me. It's an aerial shot. Yeah. So you've got a much better sort of sense geographically of what's going on. We don't get that here. They're kind of uh, surface level shots, uh, but it is the same intersection. And I'd like to believe you, Jeff, or agree with you on this idea of the, of the boy's soul emerging to a, a different place. Mm -hmm. I really think that's wrong mm. uh, because of the fact that it's yellow. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that represents Garbin Bosia. And also, I think that there may be this notion that if you're out in the world and you're from the Black Lodge, you are not supposed to keep all the Garmin Bosia to yourself. Mm -hmm. This is why 
bad coop and Dougie were forced to toss up their Garmin Bosia when their time was up. And I wonder if part of what was going on with Mike's quarrel with Bob at that scene was that Bob was keeping all the Garmin Bosia to himself. Whereas what you see here is the more free flowing dispersal mm. of Garmin Bosia uh, that Richard Horn provides by running over the kid as gruesome and awful as that seems to be. Um, you know, I think that's more plausible and I mean, it's, it's awful. And, and I just can't, I mean, I see that scene. I can imagine no higher mm. form of pain and sorrow than a mother right, grieving right. for her son that way. Right. Yeah. I, I think the bystanders and Jeff's point about communal suffering goes back to that quote that we dug up from episode one about uh, Twin Peaks, the original series, being just a long-form exploration of communal suffering or communal grief, right? Yeah, exactly. So, th- th- yeah. I think that's a, that's a good association and probably suggests that there's something worthwhile about this scene, which is otherwise kind of mawkish and sentimental and gruesome and difficult to watch. Uh, I, I totally get what Jeff is saying about the verging on self-parody aspect of the aesthetics, and I think that that just comes from the thing I've been calling porniness, this quality to the filmmaking that Lynch has now, where it's all very, he never seems to take acting performances twice, he seems to, you know, just, just put out there whatever people do on the first take, and there's a certain way of lighting it that we associate with lower budget productions or digital film, and, you know, sometimes it comes off like kind of a porn movie, and sometimes it comes off like I compared that scene in the bathroom with the awkward offer of a kiss in the last episode to something Tommy Wiseau would have shot for Neighbors or something like that. And this scene, actually, especially the way that they focused on the reactions of the bystanders and the, the super bright outdoor lighting and the um, melodrama of the whole thing, it reminded me of Christian filmmaking. There's a Christian filmmaker called Dave Cristiano that a friend of mine really, really likes, and he sort of collects all of his works. And I've seen way, way too many Dave Cristiano films as a result. But I, I was just uh, thinking about him today because there was an article about a new Netflix for Christians called Pure Flick and a lot of his stuff is up on there. And I think that the aesthetic of that scene would be very familiar to anybody who watched a lot of those films. Okay. Well, I think we've um, extracted all the creamed corn we can out of that scene. Yes. The uh, scene so- does end with uh, what I could, the, uh, the light pole. And it seems to me like the light pole from Fire Walk With Me, right? Are those the same numerals? Oh, that's a good question. And the electrical oh. kind of sounds again? Yeah, right. Right. We, de- we definitely have the electrical sounds. We, we, and we, we get this notion that, you know, that's what I thought that the yellow light goes up to the electrical wire and then it disappears. Mm. It's because it's right. gone into the black lodge yeah. at that point. Yeah. And it seems like a Carl Rod callback. The light pole with the numbers on and the electrical buzzing is all around the original fat trout trailer park and firewalk with me. Right. And the number six that appears in the pole is the same style of numbering that's on the steampunk device in the space box. Oh, yeah. Uh, where, where, mm. uh, where Coop gets sucked back into the world. So we go back here to Las Vegas, where Duncan Todd gets a special kind of pop-up window, a large red rectangle that appears on his screen, then fades away, which means it's time for him to remove from his safe at his desk a white envelope with a black dot on it. He's careful not to touch it. He, I noticed he had a handkerchief as he right. opened the safe, and I thought, well, he's trying to not get fingerprints on the safe, but he ultimately transfers the handkerchief from one hand to another so that the hand that touches the envelope is not is covered by the handkerchief. He doesn't mind closing the safe with a, uh, his own fingers getting fingerprints on it. I thought that was something. So anyway, that uh, piece of paper we're going to see in a minute. So we, we go to the Rancho Rosa development where drugged out mother, I believe that's her credit line, uh, continues to yell out 119. The police are investigated 
at Dougie's exploded car, and Dougie's license plate is found on the roof of drugged out mother and son's house. <clears throat> now we go to a hotel where there's a, another little man, um, slightly definitely larger than Michael J. Anderson and, and clearly more muscular, has got a either an owl or a fancy ice pick, some bourbon, and leftovers from his presidential breakfast of a steak drenched in ketchup. I have nothing to say about the bourbon at this time, uh, but I can't I can't remark on the bourbon in open session. But can we can we title this episode the owls are not what they seem? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, we Great. can. Okay. Yes, we can. That's all I have. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. All right. Well, that's great. Uh, so anyway, this little man uh, gets the envelope from Duncan Todd's out, uh, office. He opens it up. And somehow every time we see Lorraine, like hip hop music starts playing, which again happens. Lorraine the warrior is, is in, there's a picture of her in the envelope as well as a picture of Dougie. Uh, little man does some sort of like almost ceremonial thing with his owl or ice pick kind of scratching a pattern on each of their faces and then stabbing them. Uh, so I'm sure that's going to turn out nicely. We're, we're back at the, at lucky seven from here and, and Dougie Dougie, Cooper, whoever. He now has the Cooper black suit on, so it's fitting him a little better. He has a coffee with his own name on it. He still doesn't know how to use an elevator. Uh, this is very tiring to some of us. And it, essentially, he gets finally pushed into the office of Bushnell, his supervisor. And at, while this is happening, Tony is sort of looking very furtively at what's going on with Coop and Bushnell, the, the boss's office. And so Bushnell starts going through these files. And initially he says, you know, what are all these childish scribbles? But as he, and he says that, you know, Dougie's going to need some good professional help. But then as he starts to review more and more of these files, he starts to connect the dots. And it looks, you know, the only thing we can tell is that Coop's markings consistently um, single out Tony. And so maybe He's getting the sense that Tony is part of a larger conspiracy of fraudulent claims. And that's the disturbing, to say the least, information that he's found. Um, but I thought this was a really good scene. I really had to watch it a couple times because I was really trying to figure out what Bushnell was figuring out. It's a, an excruciating scene for the people who have just had enough of Dougie Cooper. <laughs> Uh, but I guess I'm not in that category of people, although I, I was really wondering what he was looking at in that sign. Uh, I, I'm wondering if, 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 if little Dougie can read. We don't know. He, he mostly was focused on the picture. Um, but you know, maybe he can read because he, because he seemed to be able to identify in some savant quality repeated names on files and that sort of thing when he was going through them. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, I, I thought, I noticed that when at one point Bushnell asked Kyle or Kyle, not Kyle Coop about how he can make sense of this and, and Coop says, make sense of it. And there's a way that he says, make sense of it, where his register changes. Yeah. His, his, yeah. his tone of voice gets lower, and it sounds like Coop when he says, sense of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not right. the sort of like sing song shoes, you know, uh, Leo-like quality to his voice. You get a sense that he, he may actually start to come back. Hopefully he does before Ike the Spike comes after him. Go ahead, Kyle. This is this is actually why I'm I'm being more patient with the slow burn on Cooper's return is because we are seeing uh, a degree of progress here. I agree with you. The make sense of it did sound like Cooper. It also uh, reminded me of of Kyle McLaughlin in Dune saying, "I see the truth of it," you know, which was this moment of of uh, ignorant but uh, ignorance but yet insight. 
And when he said help Dougie, that, that kind of reminded me of, you know, the, the help me line from, uh, Laura's video in the original series. And, and really this goes back to, to your point last week, JR. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin's performance in this scene and when he was reviewing the case files in the Joneses kitchen, uh, it's, it's absolutely riveting to the point where he is now my favorite Kyle. I like him better than I like myself. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Not just your favorite of the couplicates. He's your favorite Kyle, including you, Kyle. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. If if Kyle McLaughlin and I were hanging off the edge of a cliff and and a duplicate of me could only save one of us, I would tell him to save Kyle McLaughlin. Wait, okay. So especially if he was fondling yeah, grapes. Yeah, how good are you at fondling yes. grapes, Kyle? <laughs> right. And I mean, how soon are you going to move to Portland? So the next scene is great. It's it, Janie E's confrontation of uh, the goons. It turns out he bet $20,000, but now owes $52,000. And Janie E just, just tears him up, uh, and, and basically says, uh, <laughs> we drive cheap, terrible cars. We are the 99 percenters and we are shit on enough. <laughs> so at this point, I need to remind all of our listeners that Bernie would have won. <laughs> sure. And, and he probably would have negotiated that $52,000 debt down to twenty five the same way that Janie E does. Uh, she's a tough dame. This scene was great. I love this scene. It's Naomi Watts' yeah. best work in this uh, in, uh, Twin Peaks so far. It's such a bizarre tactic by her, and I was so stunned and delighted that it worked. Yeah, she's basically giving uh, Ken's review of the series. I mean, she, that's basically what her comment uh, to them is is the stuff Ken was talking about last week. My only regret is she didn't smash Dickie Bennett in the knee with a baseball bat so he'd walk funny for the rest of his life. Just, just the, like, flippant description of how football betting works and what it is. She's like, let me get this straight. People were playing games yes. and you bet money. <laughs> like. That's right. Okay. So uh, we're, we're back in Vegas and Lorraine is on the phone again with Lorraine, the warrior. There's always hip hop music in the air. Um, and it, which is, it doesn't really seem like it would be that common for this kind of suburban office environment, but it's always playing. And she does appear to like work in some sort of nameless drone office park in, you know, cubicle type environment which is weird given what she's connected to as well as her soundtrack i guess although maybe not if you think about movies like office space and uh she's on the phone and she finds out that there are three bodies which you know, presumably are the the corpses from the bombed out car of dougie there screams down the hall little man is arrived and he uh you know, really, really kills Lorraine. It, it's it's nuts. I mean, it was it was the, the hyper violence of it reminded me of the movie Man Bites Dog. Um, although I was disappointed that nobody spontaneously stood up to recite a poem about the sea and then started throwing up. Throwing up Garmin Bosia, I presume. Yes. Right. So, just a couple notes on uh, Ike the Spike here. Is it, what are we calling him? Little man from this place. Uh, the Ike he's the Ike the Spike man. That's Is that how he's credited? Ike the Spike. Okay, great. So Ike yes. the Spike, in, in his scene in his hotel room, we neglected to mention that he was rolling dice, just in case that's significant. Uh, and the closed captions here tell me that Lorraine's theme is blunted beats, with a Z, blunted beats, uh, I am, old school hip hop beat. So it's the old school hip hop beat mix of the song I am by whatever a blunted beats is. Um, but the scraping that he was doing on the pictures with his spike, with his weapon, reminds me of the card that bad coop 
produced with the owl logo on it which was like heavily distressed as though you had taken i think i said last time like somebody had taken like a toothpick or a key and distressed it so i i just made that connection now on on rewatching. so i thought i should i should throw that in there just in case it's significant well i do think the rolling dice is significant we see earlier red who seems to be quite a nefarious character uh talking about you know flipping a coin uh the element of chance the heads i win tails you lose which is, you know, may as well be the the founding notion of an insurance company, uh, as as well as a casino, right? Uh, so I think there's some element here of of chance and risk uh, at play. Although, you know, what ultimate thematic role it's going to have, I don't know. So, do you think that like if he'd rolled two natural twenties or something, that maybe Lorraine would have survived? Is there is there a way that you could Dungeons and Dragons your way out of death? No, I I don't think it's I, I don't think it's a no country for old men type situation. In fact, what he was doing was writing down in a notebook what he rolled on the dice. Oh, right. Uh, it, you know, as if like he was keeping a record to find out if there was some non chance element to the dice or something. I don't know. Or maybe he thinks he's psychic and he's trying to demonstrate his powers. So he's not, yeah, he's not Harvey Dent here deciding whether he's going to take this commission and, and kill these people. But, you know, we got a comment last week uh, of someone asking about why we, we were constantly talking about the treatment of women on the show. And, and I think this scene's a good example why. Uh, I mean, the fridging issue is not going away. Uh, so far this season, the adult, we have to say adult now, male deaths uh, typically have been off screen. You know, Jack, the military body in Ruth's apartment, the three car thieves, we didn't actually see them die. Uh, but the female deaths have been depicted in great detail, Daria, Phyllis, and now particularly gruesomely Lorraine. So uh, we're talking about it because it's there and, and it can't be ignored. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So essentially there are three bodies for, for three bodies, even though um, I don't think anybody cared about the car thieves uh, that ended up dying in the explosion, at least none of the characters we've seen. Ike the Spike has <clears throat> wiped out Lorraine and two of her co-workers at the end of the scene. And uh, from here, we see Dick Horn uh, pull off the road in his huge giant truck and does a quick uh, CSI approved uh, washing off the child guts with some bottled water from the front of his truck. And like any criminal mastermind, tosses the cloth or whatever he used to wipe the truck, as well as the bottled water, just to the side, gets into his truck and drives away. Criminal of the year. Um, <laughs> I, the I th- yeah, there's no doubt that uh, that this is going to come back after him. These are going to be like the bloody rag that was left at the train car. And, and we go from here to what I think is the most critical scene of the first six episodes in terms of seeing what had been originally prophesized by Margaret. You mentioned this earlier, Jeff. Um, we're, we're at the police station and Hawk is washing his hands and he drops a coin. We're not sure if it's a, if it's a dime or a nickel, but you know, Kyle, I think you said it must be a nickel because it has a Native American head on yes. it. Yeah. Right. Right. And so it rolls down across the, bathroom into a stall and hawk follows it and he looks down and kind of picks up the coin and then looks at the wall or rather the door of this particular bathroom stall sees that it's messing a couple rivets and it's got a manufacturing badge of a company called nez purse manufacturing well nez purse is the um, historical native american tribe that lived in the columbia river valley and was there before the residents of twin peaks it's a it's got a 
it's a small tribe, but it's got a rich and story tradition. It's the tribe that massively helped the Lewis and Clark expedition when they came into this part of the country. And, you know, it probably is uh, Hawk's own tribe. Uh, it's odd that they would have a manufacturing company, but for whatever reason, that that's what the badge says. So Hawk, I think, makes a connection to the prophecy that he missed something about Agent Cooper and that it has to do with his heritage. So he gets a crowbar and starts pulling apart the door and he finds a note. And um, this is it. Uh, you know, this is this is that, that what I reminded of is you can tell from the stall. It looks like the stall in which Mike mm-hmm. Way back in the original series had an episode with uh, his medicine and, you know, Mike emerged uh, from Philip Gerard. I believe that these notes in the door are the notes from Laura Palmer's diary. These are the notes that Bob slash Leland ripped out of her diary right before he proceeded to kill Laura. And I think that those neat notes read, my name is Annie. I've been with Dale and Laura. The good Dale is in the lodge and can't leave. Uh, this is what Laura was told to write in her diary in Firewalk with Whit. Firewalk with me by Annie Blackburn. I, I think this is where it's all going to come together. I think this is, they missed something. And what they missed are those p- missing pages from the diary. They were put there by Mike intentionally so that this could happen. Uh, and now I think what we're ultimately going to see is that scene of Hawk in the woods uh, coming upon the Black Lodge was a flash forward. And th- th- he's going to go back into the woods to find Cooper and he's going to go into the Black Lodge. And this is, you know, when we're going to see the stars turn and a time present itself. Yeah. I agree with yeah. your theory pretty much 100%. And this just seemed to me, yeah, I agree. Like one of those great moments in which I felt like Mark Frost and David Lynch's sensibilities were kind of perfectly merged. You know, I sort of felt like, you know, uh, Lynch's reliance on abstraction intuition kind of merge with i guess it's probably not fair to say this about frost but you know his sort of more uh i don't know cerebral (laughs) deductive you know kind of side of things that i just felt like both of them merged beautifully in this moment that was great and and also uh going back to the cooper drawings um hulk before he breaks into the door he goes and gets a step ladder Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so the, the rest of the scene, you've got uh, – And Chad interrupts. Yeah. And, he, and yeah, uh, no, Hawk tells him to use the lady. Chad. Yeah, Have no, you guys seriously. Have <laughs> ever known any uh, anyone decent named Chad? No. Okay. Just checking. Wait, now I'm searching through my memory like, wait, some guy I know named Chad is going to download this and be like, what? <laughs> Fuck you, Walzak. <laughs> yeah, I know one. I know one. Well, that's good. Uh, but the, that's and, about it. The good. And JR, I think it's the same Chad that I know, so I'm glad you're defending him because you and I would be getting nasty Facebook messages <laughs> next Chad. week. Like, what did I ever do? <laughs> yeah, I'm no, listening to your right. podcast that's and right. you're insulting me. The good Chad. So I'm the good Chad. I'm stuck in the lodge. <laughs> right. um, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, Chad is just such a complete asshole. Yep. He, he, he's like telling Hawk, who, who remember, he's talk as the deputy chief. Wants right. to make sure that Frank Truman knows that he's taking apart this bathroom door like anybody fucking cares. Uh, and, you know, and, but I think Hawk, Hawk handles him appropriately and is like, yeah, you go do that, Chad. Um, and then, you know, we, we're back kind of into this sort of like the dispatch room of, of the sheriff's department. But, you know, I feel bad because Doris, Frank Truman's wife, shows up again. And last week I said that she was like Nadine with less mental illness. Now I feel like it's just terrible, terrible person whose only redeeming quality is I'm not as bad as Chad uh, for saying that. Because cause we find out that that 
Doris and Frank's son, this is what has committed suicide. And that's why Doris is completely unhinged and, and losing it. And man, what a saint Frank Truman is uh, putting up with it. Of course, what we see in this scene is Chad saying that he'd never put up with, you know, a woman acting like that. And, uh, you know, he, the uh, this lady dispatcher, she's like, yeah, whatever, you know, this is what's actually going on. But he can't even like just shut up at that point. Then he's, he, he finds out that their son was in the army and committed suicide. And then he starts making fun of him for not being handled, being able to handle being a soldier. So yeah, I'm, I'm tired of her, of, of Chad. You know, I like the lady dispatcher. She kind of gives some, some side eye at, which he totally deserves, but we're all, we're all tired of Chad's shit. We're all tired of the intimidation like Janie is and uh, Bernie would have won. We, we need a soundboard, Jr., so that you can press a button with a with a cue, just so every time we have to talk about him, that just goes like "fucking Chad." Yeah, we'll work on that. And kudos to whoever—I'm not sure if you guys mentioned it last week, but like identifying the actress who plays—I think it's Doris Truman as, as Candy Clark, who was uh, David Bowie's. I think they got married, right, in the Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, I think she was sort of his at least longtime lover and companion uh, in that movie. So. I have to give credit. That was my friend Neil that was, who pointed that, that out. That was great. Yeah. That was, yeah, because yeah, once she said that, I was like, oh, that makes, I, I looked at her, I recognized her after seeing that, but that was a great, another David Bowie connection. See, Neil's are always better than Chad's. Good job, Neil. Absolutely. Totally. All right. So uh, this is the end of the episode. We go to the Roadhouse. Sharon Van Etten is playing. Uh, I really liked her guitar. Um, for it'll be JR's guitar geek corner. She's got a, appears to be a, a beautiful vintage sunburst Jaguar with a, a really nice tort pick guard and a custom mastery bridge. I really liked it a lot. Uh, but gosh, this has been really long. So I think we should cut it out, you know, wrap it up unless, but final concluding thoughts before we go. Yeah, I do. Let, if if Jeff and Ken have something, I do have something of a fair amount of length, and you can decide whether to I'll, cut it. I'll say a short thing and then defer to Kyle to wrap to to bring us home. Uh, if if this is what being right likes, that <laughs> start that again. If this is what it's like to be right, I am tired of being right and would rather be wrong. It's like we said about this whole thing being Inland Empire, grim, dark. I turned out to be right about that, and then uh, I I said that I thought we were going to get. Um, a whole bunch more of the fan service being sort of uh, titrated through and we're going to get, you know, a lot more pain and suffering along the way. And this episode managed to balance a really, really nice amount of fan service, like some really great heartwarming moments from Hawk in the restroom to the light at Sparkwood in 21 to the reveal of Diane to the really great Albert moment with just some of the hardest, most violent, most difficult stuff to watch in the, in the whole series. And it really really does bring out point out the need that i mentioned last week for a countervailing force of good i really want the robins is what i'm saying from the end of blue velvet where where are the robins we need them so so badly why are there people like chad in the world right exactly well and and to piggyback on that i i've actually thought a lot about what ken said uh during last week's podcast and and certainly that uh, seems to be underscored by episode six uh, but I, I do think there's an important counterpoint that we don't need to miss. Uh, it's true that this is pure heroine David Lynch, uh, and it's certainly delivered us a vision of pure evil. Um, but it's also delivered us a vision of pure good in the form of Dale Cooper, specifically Dale Cooper trapped in the hapless Dougie Jones. I mean, this version of Cooper is defined by his literally childlike innocence. Uh, you know, that purity is what's allowed him 
to discover the wrongdoing around him. He recognized Tony was lying. He identified what was hidden in those case files. But that same innocence so far is preventing him from understanding the very evil that he's discerning. Uh, but we do see the benefits of that clarity of decency in his interactions with Sonny Jim, uh, whose name I think represents the most significant Twin Peaks homophone since one chance out. Uh, he's Sonny with an O, uh, because he's the child Cooper's there to protect, but he's also sunny with a U. He, he's happy, he's idyllic, he's full of light and life. And, and this is why the death of the child in this episode in particular, as brutal and disturbing as it certainly was, is so critical to illustrate the point. Uh, Mike tells Cooper repeatedly to wake up and don't die. Mm-hmm. And, and that reminded me of, of another David Lynch-Kyle McLaughlin uh, collaboration uh, in which they said the sleeper must awaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the alternative to awakening into a mature understanding of evil is to be led to death by that childish incomprehension. We see that expressed literally in this episode when the boys run down in the road by Richard Horn, who's the evil that he never saw coming. Uh, it's the evil that he was unaware even existed in the world. But we've also seen that expressed metaphysically in the original series when Bob described Leland as a babe in the woods because Leland met Bob when he was a child, and his innocence led him to perhaps a willful ignorance that could only end in his being a victim of Bob's evil deeds, or complicit in them, or perhaps even both. And at the start of the episode in which Cooper caught Laura's killer, Hawk told him, you're on the path. You don't need to know where it leads, just follow. And it's interesting that we see Hawk follow that on his own advice in this episode. Yes, Cooper needs to lose the naivete, but he needs to retain the childlike wonder and curiosity that that keep him observant and allow him to perceive the truths that are there below the surface. It feels interminable watching it now, but, but this is a chrysalis. This is a necessary stage that Cooper has to pass through before he can emerge. Uh, we have to crawl, after all, before we can say, fire, walk with me. Uh, the innocence is an essential precondition to his ability to become conscious of the evil in the world without being corrupted by it. And, and one last thing from the episode where they caught Laura's killer. After Leland's death, Cooper was asked by Major Briggs whether the cause of the evil really mattered. And Cooper resolutely replied, yes, because it's our job to stop it. And for now, as frustrating and ineffectual as it is, the purity of Cooper's good is the necessary counterbalance against the purity of all this evil. And as we move into the series' second act, that's what will allow this agent of good to avoid not just the fate of Leland Palmer of the child in the road, but also the annihilation that Hawk told him would await him if he faced evil with imperfect courage. So take heart. Agent Cooper will awaken to the awareness of the evil in the world, but he will not be corrupted by that knowledge. And that's what will enable him to do what he couldn't do in season two, to root out the evil and to defeat it because it's his job to stop it. So what you're saying is young Jimmy Jones prefers Sunny Delight to Kool-Aid? Yes, something like that. <laughs> and we've gone from fire meander with me to fire crawl with me. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Okay, everybody, this has been great. Uh, thanks for listening. And we please uh, review and rate us on iTunes. Please leave comments. Give us feedback. We'd love to know what you think about the podcast, what you think we could do differently, what we could do better, because we're trying to get better every week. Uh, thanks again, especially to Jeff for coming back. 
We're happy to have you back in the fold for as long as you can make it. And uh, hopefully I will get this edited and up. Thank you. In the next 24 to 48 hours. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Bye-bye.